Children are dismissed to junior church right now. Uh, children may be, go to their classes in junior church. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles to John 3.16. John 3.16. We've been talking about God's love for us. And today we move to talk about God's extravagant love for us. God's extravagant love for us. Sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And, you know, oftentimes I'm a planner. I'm very type A, and I sketch out my sermon series, so generally I, I know where I'm going, I know where I'm heading. A few years ago, I was listening to a John MacArthur sermon, and John MacArthur just kind of ended the sermon. It was on radio and podcast, and, and just kind of said, if I get to verse 18 today, <laughs> in other words, depending on his time, you just end it. Usually, I just know where I'm going, but when I sketched out this sermon series, I do not think I realize that this passage, John 3, 16, and God's extravagant love was going to fall on the Sunday following Resurrection Sunday. But it does. By the way, it's nice to have people sitting in the front row. Usually we're back row Baptists, but they're friends of ours from our last church, so they're not afraid up front. I mean, I don't spit too much, but... Uh, anyways, <laughs> David Jeremiah shares a story. Many years ago in the little English village of Brackenwith, or Brackenwatt, I don't know how to spell it, but anyway, it sounded, anyways. Many years ago in a little English village of something, there lived a quiet and lonely man named William Dixon. William Dixon. His wife had died years before, and later he had lost his only son. Dixon often could be seen sitting by his window, watching the world go by and smiling at the happy families on the streets. One day he looked out and he saw a neighbor's home on fire. Other neighbors were already gathering, scrambling for water and shouting for help. Dixon ran out and joined them just as an elderly woman was pulled from the flames. Who else is inside? Someone shouted above the commotion. My little grandson she gasped through smoke-filled lungs. Upstairs, he's, he's trapped. Her grandson, still trapped upstairs in the home. The people groaned, and knowing the stairway was now impassable. But William Dixon hurried to the front of the house, found an iron drainage pipe running up the wall. Taking hold of this iron drainage pipe, he pulled himself upward to the window and found the terrified boy. He scooped up the child and scrambled back down to the ground. A few days later, the grandmother succumbed to her injuries, leaving the little boy an orphan with no home and no guardian. The village held a hearing to determine the little boy's fate. When the meeting was called to order, two volunteers, two volunteers came forward. One good citizen answered the standard questions, giving every assurance that he would provide a good home. The second volunteer was William Dixon, the rescuer. The rescuer whose wife had died and, and whose son had also died. The rescuer who climbed up that iron drainage pipe. The rescuer volunteered to take in the little boy. He said few words. But his hands spoke for him. They were bandaged. The hot iron pipe he'd been forced to climb had burned them severely. When it came to a vote, the man with the scarred hands 
went home with the orphan, a father once more. His love, everyone agreed, was written on his hands. His love was written on his hands. The love of our Lord was also written on his hands. The two hands stretched out and nailed to the cross where they flowed with the blood that indelibly wrote his love for us for all eternity. We've been talking about God's love. Today my theme is God's extravagant love. God's extravagant love. Sending Jesus to die for you. God's extravagant love. Sending Jesus to die for you. Uh, please turn to John three sixteen through 18. The fourth gospel, the gospel according to John, chapter 3, verses 16 through 18 in your Bibles, if you haven't yet. Uh, if you also follow along in the notes, you can also read it there. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son. Some translations say only begotten. We'll come back to that. Others say one and only. The best translation of that Greek word is unique, unique. For God so loved the world that he gave his unique Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's extravagant love. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God, salvation is exclusive and Christianity is inclusive. Salvation is exclusive through Jesus. Only through Jesus. But guess what? Christianity is inclusive. All may come to Jesus. All may come to the cross. I want to share a little background here. You might think that since the message of John 3.16 is for the entire world, it would have been delivered to a large assembly, right? Maybe in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount or in some of his discourses in the temple. Instead, though, it was spoken privately, privately to a single person. Nicodemus. I call him Nick at night. <laughs> it was spoken privately. And it was interesting. We actually don't know whether Jesus shared these words or whether the narrator, John, shared the words. It's in John's gospel. We don't know always when you're translating the Greek. You don't, we don't always know where the writing is switching from Jesus. You know, we have red letter Bibles and stuff, but red letter Bibles cannot be exact. We don't always know. It's all inspired by the Lord. It's all inspired by the Lord. We don't know exactly if this is part of Jesus's words to Nick at night or if this is, or, or if this is part of John, the author of the gospels words. But we do know, we do know they are inspired by the Lord. 
Nicodemus, Nick at night, was a leading member of the ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin. Jesus had aroused the anger and opposition of these Jewish leaders because of his claims to be the son of God and what they saw as his disregard for some of their laws. But Nicodemus was not so sure. He's part of the ruling council. They're all angry at him. If you've seen the, 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 some of the miniseries, The Chosen, they do a really good job of depicting this. The miniseries, The Chosen, which I think is on Peacock as well as your different apps. They do a really good job of depicting this. So Nicodemus was not so sure. So he came to Jesus. He came to Jesus at night. That's why we call him Nick at night, right? He came to Jesus at night. He had seen the miracles of Jesus, and he could not write him off as easy as his peers. We must remember that Nicodemus, like all Jews, Nicodemus, like all Jews, saw himself as one of God's chosen people in a highly exclusive sense. He would have seen himself as God's chosen in a very exclusive sense. They belong to God by virtue of their birth into his favored race. Their coming Messiah would destroy all Gentiles especially the hated Romans who occupied Israel. That would be part of Nick at night's beliefs, Nicodemus's beliefs. Could Jesus be the man? Could he be that Messiah, that anointed one who was gonna get rid of all the enemies of Israel? Could he be that one? So he came to Jesus. He came to Jesus at night. John three sixteen came in this conversation with Nicodemus. God eventually had it pinned by John and circulated all around the world, of course, so we know it today. A number of years ago, I think it was 2012, Tim Tebow was playing football for the Denver Broncos, and he put, I think it was in, it might have been when he was in college, he put John 3.16 in that stuff they put below their eyes. And they realized because he put John 3.16 there, there were thousands, tens of thousands, I think even 100,000 hits on, on Google searching John 3.16, what does it say? The rest of this sermon I've broken down based on an acrostic that spells gospel. And we see this acrostic, we see this gospel in John 3:16. It starts with God. Gospel starts with God, right? This is about God. God loved the world. God so loved the world. To most cultures in the past, they did not think of a loving God. We're obsessed with a loving God in our entitlement culture today, aren't we? We're obsessed with a loving God so much that we forget God's justice and God's wrath on sin and, all, and God's holiness, all these other things. Historically, they did not think of a loving God. They were always trying to appease the God, the gods, but this is about God. Salvation always begins with God. God is holy and our sins are high treason against God Almighty, but God loves. But God loves. We've been talking about God's great love. One Bible scholar points out the Greek construction in this passage puts some emphasis on the actuality of the gift. It is not God loved enough to give, but God loved so that he gave. It's not God loved enough to give. It's God loved so that he gave. God loved so that he gave. The same scholar continues, the construction of the Greek sentence stresses the intensity of God's love. He gave his best. He gave his unique and loved son. The Jews believed that God loved the children of Israel, but John affirmed that God loved all people regardless of grace. God, regardless of race. God loved all people regardless of race. 
regardless of ethnicity. God loved all people. Interestingly enough, that idea develops through the rest of the New Testament. God loved and he loved everyone. No one is left out. Every single one of you, every single one of us here, every single one of those watching on Facebook or the website or later on on YouTube, God loves everyone. God so loved the world. It is the Greek word cosmos, which means the inhabitants of the earth. God so loved the world that he gave. How are we with giving? Chuck Spindall shares a great story of post-World War II and the Americans are in Europe and they're still occupying parts and trying to, trying to help rebuild. And there's a little boy looking in a window at a baker making bread. And the boy was pretty hungry and an American soldier goes in and he, he, he sees the bread. He sees the boy looking at the baker making the bread and, and the soldier buys some of that bread and comes out and gives it to the, to the little boy. And the little boy says, Mr., are you God? And Swindoll says, we are never more like God than when we give. How are we with giving? God so loved the world that he gave. The next word in the acrostic could be only. God so loved the world that he gave his only. He gave his only. Again, this is an acrostic that spells gospel. He gave his only. God gave his only begotten son or his one and only son or his unique son. Several years ago, I started researching the Greek of this passage. I was required to study Greek in seminary, but I'm not that good with it. So I, I contacted a couple Greek scholars to look into, into that, that, that specific word that's translated only or one and only or unique. And I shared this once with you before in 2018. So I'm sure you all remember exactly what I shared. Um, the Jehovah's Witness liked the word begotten because begotten but the Jehovah's Witnesses are a cult, by the way. Begotten literally means only born. The begotten literally means born. But we all know Jesus was never born. Jesus was never born. He took on flesh and became one of us, but he was never born. One Greek scholar, Dr. Long from Asbury Theological Seminary, believes unique. Unique is the best translation of the adjective. The Greek adjective from which we get begotten is monogenes, monogenes. And it literally means one and only or only born. And, and this is a case where tracing a word's derivation is not helpful because as I stated, Jesus was never born. This adjective was also applied to Isaac. Isaac in Genesis, Isaac, the son of, 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 um, the son of Abraham. This adjective was applied to Isaac, Abraham's son. And Isaac was the only monogenes of Abraham. What does that mean when applied to Isaac? It means Isaac was a child of promise. Isaac was the child of promise. Ishmael, Abraham had another son. Abraham had lots of other children, actually. But Isaac was the unique son. That's why monogenes applies. He was a child of promise. So as we consider which term is best to translate the Greek, remember, Translation is very, very difficult. And the Greek adjective monogenes literally does mean only born, but it means more of a unique sense, more of a unique sense. 
Uh, we don't form theology based on one verse. We form theology, in this case, it would be Christology, the theology of who Jesus is, based on the whole Bible. And if you look at John chapter 1, verses 1 to 14, we see Jesus in his eternal past. Jesus is the creator and the sustainer of all things. You could also look at Colossians 1, 15 through 20. There was this unique uh, birth of Jesus. So God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten or unique son, and the rest of the passage picks up the purpose that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Salvation is open to all, but only through Jesus. I want to go to John 3.18 now. And the next word in the gospel acronym is son. John 3.18. He who believes in him, the son, is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. We have to believe in Jesus. Salvation is open to anyone, but it's through Jesus. Salvation, as I stated earlier, is exclusive in that it is through Jesus. But Christianity is, in, is inclusive. Christianity is open to anyone. It's only through Jesus, but it's open to Everyone. Everyone is eligible for the free gift of salvation in Jesus. Rejecting Jesus is rejecting God the Father. Look at John 14, 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. There is a way to the truth and to eternal life, but it's only through Jesus. That's past, present, and future, only through Jesus. We see this idea all throughout the New Testament, actually all throughout the Bible. We need a way to take care of our sins, and it's only through Jesus. We sang about that with that song, Living Hope, earlier. We celebrated that last week. We have the cross there in the corners, only through Jesus. Jesus took our sins on the cross. Colossians says our sins are nailed to the cross. We needed a way to take care of our sins, and Jesus did that. The next word in the gospel acronym is perish. Perish. All who believe in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. David Jeremiah shares, I remember reading of the apocryphal engraving of Les Moore of Tombstone, Arizona. Les Moore of Tombstone, Arizona. An appropriate place to have an epitaph, I would think. Apparently, his departure was not overly mourned, for his epitaph reads, Here lies less more. No less, no more. <laughs> the humor rings true, but the theology falls flat. Somewhere, more or less, less more abides. We will perish without Jesus to take away our sins. We could, own, we could not pay for our own sins because we had already sinned. We needed a sinless substitute, and that's Jesus. Jesus knew no sin, and he became sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The next word in the acronym is everlasting, everlasting life. And the last word in the acronym of gospel is life. We have life now and for eternity if we receive Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
That's God's extravagant love, sending Jesus to take care of our sins. John 10.10, 10, the thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus gives us eternal life, but he gives us life now, abundant life now. Will we believe? One uh, pastor of years past, J.C. Ryle, puts it succinctly. Salvation does not turn on the point, did Christ die for me? But on the point, do I believe on Christ? Do I believe on Christ? I have two illustrations, and I'm going to ask those getting baptized, though, tell them it's a good time for them to make their way out. We're going to meet in this side room here in just a moment, so uh, just excuse them here for a moment as they quietly make their get ready for the baptism. The great playwright Arthur Miller was married to Marilyn Monroe, Marilyn Monroe, during the 1950s. In his autobiography, he describes the misery of watching the troubled actress descend into the lowest regions of depression and despair. It seemed there was no way he or anyone could make her happy. He knew that her very life was on the line, that this could go only, that this could go only so far before she succumbed to her various demons, loneliness, paranoia, addiction to barbiturates. And of course, you all know what happened to Marilyn Monroe, right? One evening, there was yet another visit from the doctor which Arthur Miller wrote about, the doctor who talked Marilyn into taking a sedative that put her to sleep. Miller was pensive as he stood and watched his wife. I found myself straining to imagine miracles, he writes. What if she were to wake and I were able to say, God loves you, darling. And she were able to believe it. How I wished, this is what he said, how I wished I still had my religion and she hers. Do we believe on Christ? Do we believe on Christ? In 1912, the Titanic, the largest, most luxurious, and most advanced ship of its time, sank on its maiden voyage, taking the lives of 1,514 passengers. 1,514 passengers lives taken when the Titanic sank. And I'm told that yesterday would have been the anniversary. And I didn't even think about that when I put that in the sermon today. So it's an act of God once again, although I don't really think that the timing of this matters much. You know, though the disaster occurred 100 years ago, several movies, documentaries, and books have kept the horror of that night alive in our minds. We've all heard of passengers such as unsinkable Molly Brown and the entrepreneur John Jacob Astor V, or the fourth, but one of the most astounding stories from the Titanic has received little press. It's the story of Pastor John Harper, a widower, a widower who was traveling with his six-year-old daughter at the invitation of the great Moody Church in Chicago. Not only was he to preach there, he intended to accept the church's offer to become their next pastor. So he's a widower. He's traveling with his six-year-old daughter to go to the Moody Church in Chicago. His hopes were high, and it seemed he had a brilliant future ahead. After the ship hit the iceberg and it became apparent that it would sink, Harper got his daughter safely aboard a lifeboat. It's likely he could have joined her being her only parent. But he chose to stay aboard the sinking ship because he knew that with this disaster, God had given him an urgent mission. 
He got his daughter on board a lifeboat and Harper immediately began to go from one person to another, telling them about Christ's love and urging them to accept him. He shouted for Christians to let the unsaved fill the lifeboats so they would live to come to belief. You hear that? He's shouting, Christians, let the unsaved fill the lifeboats so that they can live to come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. When one angry man rejected the message, Harper removed his own life vest and gave it to him, saying, you need this more than I do. Harper was still actively pressing his urgent evangelism when the ship tipped upward, wrenched in half, and slipped beneath the frigid North Sea. Even then, Harper did not stop sharing the gospel. Seeing the many passengers struggling in the water with little chance of rescue, he swam to as many as he could, urging them to accept God's loving offer until hypothermia finally overcame him. I don't like cold water, but he was motivated by God and the Holy Spirit to keep swimming, sharing the gospel. In honor of him, we chose not to heat the baptistry. To, no, I'm just kidding. The baptistry is warm today. Like I said, I do not like cold water. But that's what he did. He swam from one person to another. And get this, until hypothermia eventually overcame him. Four years later at a Titanic survivors meeting in Ontario, one survivor told the story of his own encounter with John Harper. He was clinging to a piece of flotsam when Harper swam to him and urged him to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The man rejected the offer and Harper swam away. But soon Harper came around again and this time, knowing, that, knowing death to be only minutes away, the man gave his life to Christ. Moments afterward, he watched the near freezing water finally take Harper's life just as a returning lifeboat approached and rescued that man. At the conclusion of his story, he said simply, I am the last convert of John Harper. The Titanic left England with three classes of passengers aboard, three. But when accounting for their fate, the White Star Line set up a board listing only two classes, known to be saved and known to be lost. Known to be saved and known to be lost. These categories provided a fitting analogy for what John Harper already knew. There are only two classes of people in this world. Those who have received Christ and will spend eternity with God in heaven. And those who have not chosen him and will not. Which class are you in today? And are you sharing that with others? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for the example of John Harper. And most of all, your extravagant love for us sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and rise again. Lord God, we continue to worship you as we celebrate baptism, but I'd be remiss if I did not share at this point that anyone here who is strayed from you or never committed to you as Lord and Savior, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would prick their hearts. And today would be the day when they confess they are a sinner in need of a Savior and believe in you as the one and only Savior and trust in you and commit to you. Confess, believe, trust, and commit. In Jesus' name, amen.